Heavenly Father, we gather again in this place with You and with Your Word. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, as always, we yield to the Holy Spirit, understanding, Father, that there may be difficulties and challenges in what You have prepared, but You have done it for good purpose, Father, not to confuse us, but to educate us and to bring us to a closer understanding of You and Your purposes. We do pray for that understanding tonight. And we ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would guide all that's said. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Isaiah 13. Go ahead and open up there. We have a new section starting here. We've left the book of Emmanuel, so we begin another subsection in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah's book uh, will, as we've said already, divide itself into sections or use whatever word you want. Don't be put off by the fact that one section doesn't necessarily connect in thought to the prior section. That's natural. This is part of how God uh, used Isaiah to communicate to the nation of Israel and to us. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. It, It begins, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Just in the fact that Isaiah has to identify himself yet again, it kind of illustrates the fact that he feels like a new start has occurred in his writing, and that's purposeful. This section now starts, as I said, starting here in chapter 13, a new section starts. It will run all the way into uh, chapter 23. And in these chapters, in this, basically in these 11 chapters, you're going to find a series of oracles, the word is. The word, of, the word oracle just means a verbal message or a verbal word. And these oracles concerning... Different places dominate this next section. Here you see Babylon being the first, and that's, of course, going to be the topic for tonight. What follows Babylon, though, are a series of places that are all nations or hosts of people that were adversaries or enemies of Israel, either in Isaiah's day or in some past day or, in some cases, in a future day. And as usual, there is more than meets the eye to these chapters because though they will appear to talk about a particular place and the people of that place, and of course they will do that, it doesn't end there. In most cases, particularly tonight, there's a much deeper meaning involved than just, strictly speaking, a place or a nation of people. And we want to look for that as we go through the text. In fact, just starting with Babylon tonight, you'll notice very strongly that there is a huge undertone or huge secondary line of thought embedded in the story. In these chapters, you're going to see Isaiah use the term burden. He doesn't start it here in verse 1, but it will come up later, and it comes up repeatedly throughout these 11 chapters. He'll say the burden of Isaiah concerning some place. And we have often taken that, I think, to be interpreted a wrong way. You may have heard people talk about Isaiah's burden or the prophet's burden, the burden of Isaiah. And when that's discussed, often it's assigned a meaning of that you know, when you have God's Word in you, it's a burden that you carry this Word and you have to get it off your chest, so to speak. Or something along those lines, implying that God's Word becomes such a burden on the messenger that they have no choice but to relieve themselves of that burden and spread God's Word, declare what God has told them to declare. Now, that may be true. I'm not saying that concept is wrong. But that's not what the phrase means. Not in this case. The burden here refers to what the word literally means in Hebrew is a heavy weight. And what these burdens are is a heavy weight of God's judgment which God is going to let fall on these people, so to speak, metaphorically or 
in, picture, in picturing it that way, a burden is a heavy object and God is laying a burden on top of these people so as to crush them. So it's a way of expressing a coming judgment against these people, the burden that is coming against them. That's the essential meaning in Hebrew. So in most cases, the burden refers to literal judgment against a nation that is probably contemporary for Isaiah. Babylon, of course, fits this pattern. When this is being written, chapter 13, in the time it was being written, Babylon was not yet an adversary of Israel. But Babylon was going to be a country that God used to bring judgment down to the southern kingdom of Judah. That was only a few decades away at the time this was written. So, in that sense, the burden here for Babylon is literal. It takes, though, until chapter 21 to actually see that burden described. Chapter 21 is where Isaiah describes the actual coming of judgment against the country, the nation of Babylon, at the hands of the Medo-Persians. So if you know your history, you know that the Persian Empire is the empire that took over Babylon. Babylon gave way to the Persians at a point in history. But that doesn't get described here until chapter 21. Here we are on chapter 13, about to study the burden or the oracle concerning Babylon. Well, you'll see very quickly we're talking about something very different in this chapter. Now, in other cases, and this is the one I just described, in other cases, there is a secondary meaning as to this burden or this oracle. And tonight's oracle, the one concerning Babylon, is actually going to address this uh, secondary fulfillment. So, in a kind of interesting twist, the simple way to understand the burden of Babylon waits until chapter 21. The physical, literal destruction of the nation that Nebuchadnezzar is associated with. The more subtle, the more prophetic meaning of Babylon is the one that's actually first. It's the one that comes tonight, front and center. But in some ways that's good because it'll help us set the pattern. It'll help us understand that there are these secondary meanings because we're going to deal with this one right up front. So to understand what Isaiah is teaching today, and in fact for the future weeks as we study through these chapters, I've got to take a little bit of time tonight to help you understand the way Scripture uses name places, and for tonight's sake, we're going to study how it uses the name Babylon. This is very important because though it has a literal physical place in mind, that is true, it has other meanings as well in Scripture. And it's those other meanings that we're talking about tonight. So I've got to help you walk through that. And if you take notes, this is good stuff. If it comes back to you when you study some other places in Scripture, you'll, you'll be glad you have this. There are, generally speaking, four ways that Scripture uses the term Babylon. Four different ways. First, there is the ancient kingdom founded by Nimrod. And if you know, again, if you know your, your Bible, you know Genesis, this is in conjunction with the story of Babel, where the tower is constructed by uh, a group of people that came out of the flood from Noah's descendants. And as they construct a major city, they create a tower. They call the tower Babel. The town itself, the city, is all considered Babel. And that place is located in Mesopotamia, which is today present-day Iraq. That's the first way. So if you hear Babylon mentioned, sometimes it's in reference to that early kingdom or nation of people under Nimrod. Sometimes abbreviated Babel, or sometimes the word Babel is used instead of Babylon, but it's the same word in Scripture. Secondly, there is the kingdom of Babylon that I've referred to already tonight, which is the one ruled by Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or a number of other kings. It's the kingdom that occupies present-day Persia or historic Persia, Iran, parts of Iraq, 
uh, principally centered in Mesopotamia. That nation, by the way, came on the scenes at a certain point in history, and then it was taken off the pages of history by the Medo-Persians. So that's the second way we say, or the second place or, or way that the word Babylon is used in Scripture. Third, there is a physical city of some size reconstructed in the last days, shortly before Christ's second coming, a city from which the Antichrist lives and rules the entire world. This place is called Babylon. It's described in Revelation 14 and in Revelation 17 and in Revelation 18. It's alluded to in Daniel 9. And then there is a fourth meaning. Identifying these places by their leaders, you have Nimrod's Babylon, you have Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, you have the Antichrist's Babylon. But apart from all of those, there's a fourth meaning. And to figure out the fourth meaning, we have to take a moment and make some observations concerning the first three. All three mentions of Babylon that I've given you already are of a physical city. And if you notice, they're all located in the same place. They are all in Mesopotamia. What other notable event takes place in the pages of Scripture in Mesopotamia? Adam and Eve, the fall occurred in Mesopotamia. The Garden of Eden was in Mesopotamia. How would you characterize the kingdoms and the activities that mark this place throughout its mentions in Scripture? It's always opposed to God and his purpose and plan, Israel being one of the more obvious ways in which that happens, yes, but even before Israel, it is that way. It's a place where the enemy has, seems to have been at work from the very beginning, literally, to bring mankind into slavery to sin. It's the place that the first man-made kingdom was stood up, this kingdom of Babel, the first time men organized a city or a population center of any kind in Scripture, was done under Nimrod in the days after the flood. And it was the first act of this group of mankind was to seek to challenge God's authority. We know historically that Babel, this true Babel from Scripture, from Genesis chapter 10-11, is the place where idol worship began under Nimrod. Prior to Nimrod, there was no evidence in Scripture of anyone ever worshiping idols. It's where occultism began. You know, the ziggurat, which is the, the pyramid that has steps going up the side, which you see evidence of in South America or in Central America or Mexico. Uh, it began, many believe that's what the Tower of Babel actually looked like, and there's some archaeological evidence to support that, I'm told. And that that is a part of an occultist or pagan worship system, which found its origins in Babel. Later, it's the place where God called Abraham out so that he could be sent from the promised land. And in that alone, you see a bit of a, of a dichotomy being developed in Scripture. From east to west, bad to good. Out of the east into the west, away from Mesopotamia into the promised land. God calls men out of sin into faith. That's the picture that Scripture will use over and over again. When, the, when Cain is evil, he's sent to the east. There's an eastward movement for the unbeliever, a westward movement for the believer in Scripture. These are motifs or pictures that God is reinforcing throughout Scripture to keep making or illustrating a black, white, good, bad, sin, grace perspective in Scripture. And Mesopotamia seems to be the heart of that picture for God when it comes time to embody evil, sin, the enemy, rebellion, occultism. It always takes its center, it seems, out of Mesopotamia or Babylon. Babylon seems to be the picture for the existence of sin and for rebellion against God. 
Then we see it later moving to be the place for Babylon the nation, which interestingly, and I showed you pictures of this when we first met, and I didn't really come back to it because it was, in retrospect, probably premature. But we looked at, I mentioned briefly at one point about how in Daniel you get a picture of Gentile nations, which are pictured by a statue described in Daniel chapter 2. You have to understand what, what God describes in this statue are a series of coming Gentile kingdoms which end with Christ's arrival in the second coming. But what's really remarkable about this is to a Jewish audience, just the mere fact of this is a very stunning revelation. God had previously set up the nation of Israel as his chief nation, and it will once again become such. But at the point where they had reached to a level of apostasy God then needed to take judgment against, his chosen method for judging Israel's apostasy was to put them under subjugation to Gentiles. The dogs, the unchosen, were going to have authority and dominion over the chosen as a punishment. And it would go on, God said, from here to here. This is like a timeline of history represented by the parts of this body. Who is the head? Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So when God set about saying, it's time for the Gentiles to take my revenge against the sin of Israel, he starts with what? Babylon. Babylon is the first of this series that he decides will have dominion. So he lets the world have dominion over his children for a time. And, he, and it's centered, it starts with Babylon. So that's the next way we see it. And then finally, we know that when God allows the Antichrist to rise to a position of prominence and dominion in the world, when that day finally arrives, and it is God's timing for when it will happen, the enemy, Satan himself, will gain a seat of power in dwelling a man in the form of the Antichrist from which he can rule the world and oppress both believer and, and Jews alike. He chooses to set that seat of power up. Of all places he could set it up, he chooses to set it up in Babylon again. So the pattern here is just unmistakable. It's unmistakable that when, that when Scripture talks about Babylon, it, it can mean a place, yes, and often does, but in many other cases, or in many cases generally, it's not limited to simply talking about a place. It's meant to also convey a whole set of understanding about the meaning of the place and the purpose it plays in history for God. It is the, the poster child for sin and evil. Babylon has a deeper and much more important meaning in that respect. It stands as a symbol or as a representation for the enemy's efforts to corrupt God's people and steal his glory. If heaven is God's home court, then Babylon is Satan's. One last detail before we go into the text. Babylon will come to personify, from all of what I've just said, false religion in any form. False religion in any form. Remember, the enemy in his opposition to God and to God's truth, the father of lies, any time he wins, he wins, so to speak, any time the true gospel is countered by a false religion, regardless of what that view may be. Right? Does he care whether you are a Buddhist or a Mormon or an atheist? Or whatever, as long as you're not a true born-again Christian, does it really matter? He would just assume give you a million other choices if it makes you feel better, as long as you don't pick the right one. So while we tend to look at the world like a pie chart in which you can have maybe countless slices of ways to have belief and faith and religion, and Christianity is just one of those slices, well, that's exactly the way the enemy would like you to believe it's it is. Because 
that kind of plurality makes it seem as though there are a lot of ways to get to heaven, number one. Number two, you know, I have a lot of different choices, like, a, like someone who's playing the lottery. What are the odds that I'll land on the right one? But if you understand what Scripture says, which is there are those who are led by the enemy and are the sons of disobedience, of which we were all once one of them, and then there are those who believe, and the road is narrow, the pie chart is really that. There's everything else, and then there's those who know the truth. So anytime a religion can come on the scene and compete, so to speak, with the truth, the enemy is gaining ground in some sense because he is diluting, he is muddying the waters all the more. And that's all to his advantage, he thinks. Putting God's sovereignty aside for the moment, just looking at it from his point of view. He's, he's winning, so to speak. So in reality, there are only two choices. Everything else is, is just all the wrong choice. And this Wrong choice, this big section of the pie that represents all the other ways you can be wrong, you can call that, and Scripture calls that, Babylon. What is the Tower of Babel famous for? The confusion that arised out of many languages. There's a picture built into that. That there is the confusion of many voices, Babylon, competing with the true voice of God. There was the confusion of many men in different languages scattered because as a single group they were unified against God. They were still against God. Now they just had a lot of voices and couldn't unite to their own benefit ultimately if they understood God's grace. So let me give you the last nugget here that helps put this in in its right perspective. You're wondering how I'm going to get two chapters out of tonight. I promise you it, it moves quickly. The father of lies is Satan. His home court is Mesopotamia or Babylon. And all the lies that come from him can be captured or summarized as Babylon. In the same way that someone who comes from England is called English. Someone who comes from Canada is called a Canadian. Something that comes from or originates from Mesopotamia is Babylon. That's the connection here that we want to make out of Scripture. So there are times in Scripture where the word Babylon, the fourth use of the word, is to describe this world system, this false counterfeit system of worship and thought that is all sin and all from the enemy and is opposed to God in every sense. It is embodied by the city. It is physically located there and concentrated there at points in history. But it is everywhere and at all times present in the world as long as the enemy is still reigning in this world until Christ's return. Let me uh, show you out of Revelation three verses to reinforce the use of Babylon in this fourth way, it will become important because of what we're going to see coming into the text tonight. Verse 3 of chapter 17 of Revelation. John says, and he carried, talking about an angel that is giving him this vision, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. On her forehead was a name, a name was written, a mystery, and here's what the name is, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Let me just summarize a couple of thoughts out of there so I can move through it. What is a harlot, just generally speaking, a prostitute, in other words? What, what is it? When you think of a prostitute, what, we understand what purpose or function that person serves, I guess, in, a, in one sense. But think of it more deeply. It's like, it's like a counterfeit, right? It's 
counterfeit love. It has the appearance of it in some respects, but it lacks all the meaning of it, the depth and the truth of it. It's a counterfeit. It's an empty imitation of the real thing. That's the term. That's what the term is meant to suggest here as well. This image, this personage that's being described here is an image constructed to convey a message. She's a harlot because she's a counterfeit for something. She's not the real thing. She's a counterfeit. And she carries the name Babylon because she is a counterfeit of something good and instead of it being the real good thing, it's a complete corruption and distortion of the real thing. What is the real thing in this case? Faith, true knowledge of God in the form of His Word. The counterfeit here then is an abomination, a harlot in comparison to the true gospel. Something that sounds good at first, may even give some of the same feeling of what it means to know the truth, but it's completely corrupt of the truth. False religion, in other words. False religion. So what is the term mother of harlots going to mean to us then? Like the mother of all battles, right? The mother of harlots. It means she is the one who gave birth to all the counterfeits. All false religion came from the mother of of the harlots. And what is the name of the mother of harlots? Babylon. Spiritual Babylon is the mother of all false religions, and it's where the enemy gave them all their start. So that's the sense of what Babylon means here. Looking further down that same chapter, just briefly, two verses... Verse 14, these will wage war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the harlot sits atop all nations, all people, all tongues. In other words, no one is immune from her influence. And that that includes, by the way, believers because no one's born a believer. You and I all were at one point sons of disobedience, so we were under the influence of Babylon, whether we knew it or not, until such point as we come to know the true living God as a Christian canon faith under the gospel, and then we are moved out of that world and into the other. So she is one who influences everyone to some degree. And she's always around us because the world is still filled with that false understanding. If you go on further into chapter 17 and then 18, you see how this false Babylon is taken down by Christ's return. So that's Babylon in a greater sense, in a different sense of the word. All right, now let's return to Isaiah. He is going to deal with not the Babylon of Nimrod, not the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar, but he is going to deal with the Babylon of the Antichrist and the Babylon of this world system. That's the one that's in view tonight. Okay, with that background, let's go to Isaiah. Look at 13.2 all the way through 16. 2 through 16. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and His instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. 
to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken from its place, and the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger, at the fury in the day of his burning anger. And it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, they will each turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Now, I read that as a single section because, I've really, because you have to hold the context together to get the full sense. Breaking it down verse by verse isn't as necessary here because you can see a lot of it is a reinforcing of a single picture. First, it's obvious here we're looking at a battle, some kind of armed conflict. He, he starts by saying, lift up a standard. A standard is a flag, like the kind of flag you rally troops with in battle. Lift up a standard, he says. Call to men who will then execute God's wrath, it goes on to say. Then it talks about a thunderous roar of people gathered for battle, mustered by God, coming from a faraway land to destroy some specific land, some specific target. Clearly, you put all those pieces together, God is at work. God is going to bring about this event to serve some greater purpose. And he's doing it through both men in the form of a battle, and then later in the text, obviously through supernatural things as well. So there's more going on here than just a single battle. And the first hint we get of a time, or of a time in, uh, a point in time, a, a kind of calendar uh, reference here, a time marker, is in verse 6. He says, the day of the Lord. He repeats that in verse 9. What does the day of the Lord mean in prophetic text? Tribulation. Now, it's commonly considered the day of Christ's return because it mentions day, and so we think of a moment in that way. And it's certainly connected to his second coming because one gives way to the other. But in scriptural terms, it's always a specific mention to the time of Jacob's troubles, to the time when God is pouring out wrath on the earth. And you'll see contextually in what we've read, that's consistent here. He says twice, it's the day of the Lord, and then, twice, and then beyond that he goes on to talk about it being a day of great fury, burning anger, extinguishing sinners. This is the kind of thing that we anticipate for tribulation. Every man's heart will melt, all hands will go limp. It goes on and on, right? Think about just the one reference I mentioned already of removing sinners from the land. Has that event ever happened? And I'm talking now with the efficiency that God here declares, right? None are left. It's all over. We've never seen that. So we can't be talking about a kind of battle that's taken place even till now. Not with all of these effects laid out. Then you move into verse 10 and beyond, and you see a confirmation here, as I said, that this is some kind of unprecedented supernatural event. No moon, no stars, no sun. The day of the Lord is always associated with those signs. Nothing we've seen up to this point. And then, of course, the implication that it's a punishment, that it's coming against a world full of sin that deserves this outcome. Men who become scarce, we're told. An earth that trembles, even, under God's fury. So remember, we're talking here about both a natural kind of destruction coming through an invading army that God himself stirs up for this purpose, combined with a supernatural series of events that further produce destruction. 
The two combine to create events that serve God's purpose against Babylon. And this is, of course, something that tribulation is described to include. So, when the world finally turns against Babylon in the last days, it comes in part by the work of a world army that God raises up to destroy the city and then is included in a larger scale of events that affect the whole world supernaturally. That would explain verses 14 through 16, where it says that people are scattered and that killed by the sword and so on. It's obvious it's more than just supernatural stuff. There's also men-to-men combat. All right, so, so far, what do we know? We're looking at the destruction of Babylon in the future day of tribulation. So much, so good. Let's go on. Verse 17. He says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. And their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, but desert creatures will lie down there and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches also will live there and shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, jackals in their luxurious palaces, and fateful time also will soon come and her days will not be prolonged. Now, this is a puzzling passage, in one sense at least, because if we've been following the context up to this verse, up until verse 17, we're firmly placing these events in a future day, well future of even our day, not just Isaiah's day. Then we reach verse 17, and what strikes us, if you know history? It refers to the Medes. And and we know from history, or many of you may know from history, that it was the Medes, the Medo-Persians, who in 540 B.C., conquered Babylon, the nation, and the city, and took over control as the major world power in the world. They are, the arms and the chest is the second after the head. So we look at that in verse 17, and we we begin to assume naturally, and frankly many commentators have made this assumption, that this is now speaking of the coming destruction of Babylon under the Medo-Persians in 540 B.C., a careful inspection of the text, however, will make that interpretation impossible. First, let's define the term Medes. The term Medes, in Hebrew the word is Madai, M-A-D-A-Y. Madai was a son of Japheth, one of Noah's sons, which is present-day Iran, present-day Persia, or used to be called Persia, present-day Iran, was the place that Japheth settled, and his first one of his sons, Madai, stayed in that place, and it became ever more known after his name. Medes is a, uh, a version of the word Madai in Hebrew. Prophetic scripture, though, often uses ancient place names to reference modern people and modern groups. I want you to look back just a few pages in, in Isaiah to chapter 11, verse 11. Look at 11:11. 11, 11. Now, we went, when we looked at 11, chapter 11 before, we understood in that chapter that we were looking at a description of the regathering of Israel shortly before Christ's second coming. Look at what verse 11 says. Describes In describing the regathering of Israel in a future day, understand, this is a chapter that was describing Israel coming back into its land, beginning, as we now know, in 1948. Long, long after Isaiah's time, and certainly not long after the, the events of Babylon and Medo-Persia and, and so on. We're talking about present day. 
But look at how it describes the regathering. Does it say, for example, in verse 11, Israel will yet again be regathered in its land and come from Afghanistan and come from New York and come, right? What does it say? Cush, Elam, Shinar. Could you point to a map today and find Cush? You absolutely could if you knew that you were looking at Egypt. The word Cush is Egypt. That's where Ham settled, another descendant of Noah, another son of Noah. I asked you where Elam is. Would you find it on a map today? You absolutely would, but you'd have to know that that is actually present-day Iran. Or Shinar, which is present-day Babylon. So in other words, why didn't Isaiah say in chapter 11, on a future day Israel will be regathered and they will come from Iran and Egypt and so on? Because those weren't the place names of the day he wrote it. Similarly, if he was going to describe an army coming to destroy Babylon in the time of tribulation, an army that originates from modern-day Iran, what name would he give to that location in his day? Medes. That was the name of the place in his day. We then go a step further if we're not careful, and we assume that that has to refer to a certain group of people from that region in a certain time, the Medo-Persians. Why would we assume that when we've already seen evidence that he will use place names that are contemporary for his time, but yet refer to a, a different group of people that live in that same place in a future time. If we let that same possibility exist here now in chapter 13, what do we then conclude from looking at the text? That it is a group of Medes from present-day Iran, in other words, Iranians, or some group from that region anyway, who will be instrumental in God's plan to destroy Babylon during tribulation. They will come in from that part of the world and march into Iraq, present-day Iraq, and do their work as God has decreed, as God has designed it. Now, if you notice in the verses we've already read, it's not just that group that comes in. He says he brings people from far off, all over, from horizons far away. So it appears as though this group has a kind of leadership role. Maybe, the head, maybe they're the instigators. Maybe they have some kind of powerful role in the world in their day. But whichever it is, he identifies the Medes as a source for this army, but it does not imply at all the Medo-Persians. Second way we know that, and probably even more convincingly, look at the details of the invasion. We're told after the Medes invade and destroy every person, they level the city. It will resemble, it says, Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, there's nothing left. Furthermore, it says it will never be inhabited again. Isaiah even goes a step further, and I love this reference because it really nails the coffin on the, on the thought that this is the Medo-Persians. It says, never will an Arab live there again, nor will sheep ever be able to graze there. Only desert creatures will live there. It's literally the end of Babylon. We see a description of the end of Babylon in Scripture. It's in Revelation chapter 18, which we know comes at the end of the tribulation. The Medes, when they entered Babylon in 540 B.C., they didn't even have a fight. There was not even a battle. The city surrendered. The king was taken and executed, and he was the only one who died. The city was left totally intact. In fact, it stood completely untouched for another 40 years, and even after it was destroyed, it's been rebuilt, at least to some extent, and it's certainly got people living there right now. In other words, none of what Isaiah says about what will follow the battle has ever been taken place. None of the destruction that he describes and not certainly the lasting effects. It simply doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the historical details of the Medo-Persian takeover. So this is consistent with what we've seen in the first half of the chapter. It describes a future day of destruction for Babylon. 
So now, what do we know followed chronologically or will follow chronologically from these events? If we're talking about tribulation and we're talking about Babylon being destroyed, the physical city being destroyed, and if we know that that ties us to Revelation 18, where we see the system of thought also destroyed. If you know Revelation, you know there's 17 and 18. 18 describes the destruction of the city in physical terms. 17 talks about the destruction of Babylon, the spiritual Babylon, the end of world, false world religion before Christ's second coming. There's no false religion in Christ's rule on earth. You either follow Christ or you follow nothing. There's no, God doesn't allow any false religions in the world that exist under Christ's rule. So this system is put to an end as he comes back to earth. What follows those events in terms of time, eschatologically, what comes next in God's timeline after he accomplishes these things? The Messianic kingdom, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. The kingdom again. See my point? Tribulation comes to an end with these culminating events because what happens after chapter 18 in Revelation? What's chapter 19? Christ's return. Chapter 19 describes Christ's return. So this is the last series of things in the time of tribulation. Then it ushers in the kingdom, right? Why am I bringing up all this timeline questioning? Because it helps you understand the connection between chapter 13, which we just finished, by the way, and chapter 14, which we're now going to go after. If chapter 13 is tribulation focused on Babylon and comes to an end as Babylon comes to an end, logically, what do you think Isaiah might jump into next? Well, look at chapter 14, verse 1. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. A nice little transition into discussing what Israel has waiting for it in the kingdom that follows these events. It's not a long description, and he'll leave it here in a minute in a very fascinating way. But before that, just take note of some of these details. Interesting details that, to me, help add flesh to the bones of what I've been taught about, the, about this coming kingdom, making it more real to me, because it's, it's telling me things that are very important. When Israel was established as, as the apple of God's eye, he established them as his chosen people, chief nation on the earth. But, of course, they quickly let him down, which he understood would happen. He put them under a, a form of extended judgment represented by the timeline of Daniel 2. But at some point this ends, Israel then returns to being what it was always intended to be, chief nation on the earth, all other nations serving them. In the meantime, it is exactly the opposite, which is the irony of God's judgment. All the Gentile nations ha are on top and Israel is always scrape, scrapping to protect itself on the bottom, always under the oppression of some Gentile enemy. That's God's plan, that they would feel that oppression until he is ready to relieve them of it. This describes the relieving of it. And look how he says things will turn. Strangers attach themselves to Jacob. Who are the strangers? Nations of Gentiles who come into the Messianic kingdom and live and reign with Christ, you and I to be specific. And it says these peoples, the Gentile nations, will serve Israel as servants. We are given to Israel as Israel's servants. Now, you can put a, a kind of, I guess, two, broadly speaking, two different thoughts to that statement. You can bring a kind of human thought to it. And by that I mean, how would you expect to be treated as the servant of someone who you previously were an oppressor over? You know, you would be thinking, well, turnaround's fair play. It's going to end up being, they're, they're going to be making me pay back 
for all those years they were on the bottom, right? It's going to be drudgery, misery. But of course, that implies sin. It implies a sinful motive and a sinful heart and sinful judgments. Remove all of that from the equation, though, and you have no reason to assume the worst in that kind of a situation. That's the second view you can take. The second view you can take is knowing what the times are like, you can say it will be a different relationship altogether. One that God has established, that Israel will have this prominent position and the rest of the world will seek to serve it. And that they, as it says, will take their captives captive and will rule over their oppressors. Understand that's a poetic phrase. It is not to suggest we are their captives in the sense that we are oppressed. It is just to make the point of the turn. Those who were previously holding them captive now are the ones who must serve them. But not necessarily from the position of slavery, just to make the illustration of the switch. Verse 3. Now this is, I would argue, one of the most intriguing uh, and actually a, a bit humorous scenes in the Old Testament. I love this passage, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to try to incorporate it tonight, because it really rounds out what we're looking at tonight. Verse 3. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the people in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger and unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. All right, just hold there for a second. I want to note some things as we push further into the text. We've got to stop here just long enough to set some, kind of some ground rules here, some, some understanding. The setting, number one, the setting has not changed. You, knew, you know that clearly because he starts off by saying, in that day, then he defines it further, this day in which pain will stop, your service will stop, your, your enslavement will stop. This is clearly the beginning of the Messianic kingdom. And so I want you to understand, we're talking about a point in time, this, this juncture, this moment, right around the end of tribulation and the beginning of of the Messianic Kingdom, just kind of put a circle around that juncture, plus or minus some period of time, it's right in this beginning time of the Messianic Kingdom that we're talking about. He says, when that time comes, you, Israel, get to take up a taunt. Now, we know what that word is, right? What does a taunt mean? What image comes with that word? Mocking, right? Making fun of? But, but under what circumstances, usually? There's a kind of competition implied there, or some kind of rivalry, because I don't just walk up to people and randomly taunt them, Right? I mean, not if I want to live long in this city. But if I'm doing that, it's usually because there was some grievance, some competition or rivalry, and I ended up on top. And it's even better if the person who ended up on bottom was trash-talking before the whole thing started, right? It just makes it all better when you finally end up on top. Who is the king of Babylon? Second thing we have to understand. First thing was the timing, all right? It's a taunt, but then in a certain time. Second thing, who is the king of Babylon? We can get there pretty easily with a couple of, of, of logical deductions. First of all, would you think he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar? In other words, people who had that title, but, but not here, way, way back in time? No, that would make no sense. I mean, he could be, but what would be the point in going way back in time and talking about some other king? I mean, there's a whole line of kings that ruled in Babylon, going all the way back to Nimrod, for that matter. Why pick on any one of them? What would make more sense? If we're talking here about the time immediately following tribulation the only sensible conclusion to make is you're talking about the person who held that title most recently, right in this ending period of tribulation. Who would that be? 
who would be the king of Babylon in the last days? The Antichrist. Now, who is the Antichrist, just generally speaking? Who, who are we talking about? A man born into this world who comes to a significant place of power in the world. He leads the whole world. And uh, does it with the power of the enemy and God's sovereign providence to allow it to happen. At a midpoint of tribulation, again, I'm throwing ideas out that I don't have time to support just yet. We'll come back to this topic later in, in the book of Isaiah. But at the midpoint of tribulation, he undergoes a death. The man does. Leaves him dead for three days. And at the end of the third day, he comes back to life. Or so the world thinks. And they then see that as proof that he is deity. And it consolidates his power and authority for the last half of tribulation. What he, whatever he had in the first half of tribulation pales in comparison to the kind of power and authority he wields in the second half. Not the least of, re, of reasons why is he is indwelt by Satan himself. Satan takes up residence in the man's body for the last half of tribulation. Not any ordinary demon possession. This is the big guy himself in the man's body. Okay, that's, again, wrapping a bunch of stuff up I don't even, that I'll have to come back to as the book allows and we'll cover it in detail. But I need to give you that background now because that is the man we're talking about here. The king of Babylon in that last day is now receiving a taunt from Israel, who was his chief target, by the way, as he went about persecuting the world, which you saw some of that in the earlier verses I just read, that he had unceasing strokes of fury against the peoples, and Israel was the chief recipient of that. Another point here, the whole world is quiet and at rest. That's confirming we're still talking here about the time of the Messianic kingdom. Total peace on earth with Christ ruling. Now listen to the taunt that Isaiah offers for these people. Fascinating stuff. Verse 9. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You've become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven. O oh, star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You've been cut down to earth, you who weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you've been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you've ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. What a compelling, what a powerful testimony here. The imagery here is really stunning. And... The description we understand is poetic to a degree, but what's really gripping is to consider the possibility that many of these details may be literal descriptions of life in hell, at least to some extent. First, I want you to also note here, there's the prospect here that in hell, a new arrival would not be notable for obvious reasons, right? 
Every day, more are coming. And therefore, it takes the arrival of someone noteworthy like this guy to kind of stir up excitement in the place. They haven't had anything excited happening since, you know, Hitler. And now all of a sudden, this guy shows up, and they're thinking, look who's here. Mr. Big Man, coming down with the rest of us. Because on earth, these kings were under the terror of this man's rule. And more than just his rule, they were under the impression, based on his own testimony, that he had something they didn't have. He was godlike. And that gave them a kind of doubt and fear as to whether or not he was truly someone they could reckon with or whether they needed to be worried, of course, of what he, he could do to them. And now they find you just like the rest of us. Look in verse 12, though. The sense of the text changes, and this is something worth pointing out as we kind of wrap this up. We're almost at the end here. The earlier comments before verse 12 clearly regard an earthly king of some regard, the king of Babylon. And we know that to be the Antichrist. But in verse 12, it changes to emphasize a different leader. They call him the star of the morning, the son of dawn. In Hebrew, star of the morning in Hebrew is He'el, H-E-E-L, He'el. In the first translation of the New Testament from Greek into Latin, we call that version the Latin Vulgate, the word in Latin that is translated out of He'el in the Hebrew here, when they took this word out of Hebrew and they went to put it into Latin, the Latin word for star of the morning is Lucifer, which is where we get the word Lucifer from. It's reminiscent of the morning star out of Scripture. You'll see the morning star referenced in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and in Revelation 22. And in both those cases, who is the morning star? Jesus Christ. So there's an interesting kind of play here with someone who called themselves star of the morning, which in Latin is Lucifer, similar to but not the same as the morning star, which is Christ. And this person or personage here, is someone who claims to be like Christ and says that they, as verse 13 says, that they want to be throned above God Himself, that they sat on the mount of the assembly. That's a reference to the temple mount. They sat in the seat of Moses, on the mercy seat, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. This person had the audacity to sit there so as to call themselves God, in other words. They said they would be like the Most High in verse 14. Well, who fits that description? Starting with the name, of course, Satan himself. This is where you see, and this is not unusual in Scripture, for, for prophetic Scripture, the meaning changes subtly somewhere in the midpoint and then comes back to where it started. Antichrist gives way to a description of Satan himself, gives back, and then eventually in the text comes back to talking about the Antichrist again. How can it do that? What, what's the point? Well, it, the Antichrist and Satan are one and the same for a period of time. Because you have to remember what actually happens in timeline sequence here. When the Antichrist dies at midpoint of Trib, where does his soul go? Right where we're reading, right? The place we all would go if we're unbelievers, down to the pit. When he comes back to life three days later, does God allow his soul to come back? No. He stays in the pit. The only reason his physical body becomes animated again and moves around and looks lifelike again is not because his soul came back into it in the true sense of resurrection, but because the Antichrist counterfeits the resurrection. By occupying the body and by his power is the spirit inside the body brings it back to an appearance of life. But it's not actually the same person anymore. It's just a shell of the Antichrist occupied by the Satan himself. Think about how that so perfectly matches Satan's M.O. It's a counterfeit resurrection. 
It's a counterfeit Christ. It's all by the power of the enemy's spirit, not by God's spirit. Counterfeit God-man, counterfeit Christ. That's his M.O. That's his whole purpose. That's how, it makes, that's how God allows it to develop so that he can then end it all in his preferred fashion. But what you're seeing here is Isaiah reflecting the Antichrist's diminishment into hell, as the soul, and then you see him including in that judgment Satan himself, who is likewise bound in the pit at the end of tribulation to be released in a thousand years for a time. But he is at one point bound in this same pit. And the transition is very similar to one that another prophet does. If you want a little homework, kind of a fun exercise, some of you this has no connection to the word fun, I realize, but for some it might. If you go to Ezekiel 27, there's a famous sonnet or poem there written to the king of Tyre. It's actually two parts. One part is the prince of Tyre. The second part is the king of Tyre. The prince of Tyre was a true earthly man who ruled in the city of Tyre. It's a Philistine city. The king of Tyre is one who is said to have been in the garden, the most glorious of all the angels. In other words, it's Satan. The king of Tyre describes the fall of Satan in heaven as he was cast down. So there's a similar example of where two people are being intermixed in Scripture with similar titles, but, they're being, but the Scripture makes clear by the context that it's two different people, two different personages. Go back and look at Ezekiel 27. You'll see what I'm talking about. Okay, the, end, the oracle ends with five, six verses that don't require any real uh, elaboration because they're a summary. Look at verses 22 onward to verse 27. Verse 22, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon the name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the hedgehog and swamps of water. And I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land. And I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that has stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for his hand stretched out, who can turn it back? So this is a summary. My way of summing it up is, God said it, so count on it. And it's with respect to not just one nation, but as you notice there in verse 26, against the whole earth, reinforcing yet again that we're looking at an event here that is broader than just one nation dying or getting destroyed in one day. It's a reference to the tribulation and God's efforts in that time. Next week, we'll pick up here because if you'll notice, the next verse starts a new oracle against the Philistines. That's very short. It ends at the end of the chapter. Then that's followed by Moab in chapter 15, Edom in chapter 16, Damascus in chapter 17, all of which I believe we can do in one sitting. And you'll see another pattern, another series of things in those cities. Dear Father, I uh, turn to you yet again in prayer and thank you for this night, for the chance to study your word, Father. Thank you for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, both to help me understand and, and relate the truth, Father. I pray that he's also been at work in the hearts of those who listen, that despite uh, how I may have taught correctly or otherwise, that they have seen the truth by his power. We pray, Father, as well, that the story and the meaning as Isaiah has taught it of your plan for the end of the days and of the earth would be one that would ref- prompt us, Father, to think all the more urgently about how we live our life and the decisions we make and the opportunities we may take, Father, to bring the news of the gospel to others. Let us have that sense of urgency, Father, knowing the days are short. 
And as always, Father, we do thank you for the privilege it is to be in a room and teaching regularly and studying the Bible every week. Let that continue according to your will and bring us back here next week. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.